everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Pension Trends Plus with Atara, bringing you up-to-date information on pension funds, securities class action litigation, and all things related to your portfolio and business and some life stuff as well. I'm Atara Hirsch-Torsky, securities class action attorney at AF&T in New York City. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome New York Times staff writer Nelson Schwartz to my show. Nelson has worked at the New York Times for over 10 years and has covered economics since 2012. Before that, he wrote about Wall Street and banking for the Times and also served as European economic correspondent in Paris from 2008 until 2010. He joined the Times in 2007 as a feature writer for the Sunday business section. Nelson is very interested in all aspects of the American economy with an eye toward combining human stories with data that tells a larger story. Nelson is especially interested in inequality, the future of manufacturing, and how workers and companies are adapting to the technological and economic changes transforming the country and the world. Nelson is also the author of The Velvet Rope Economy, How Inequality Became Big Business, an important book on the real-world impact of class divisions in America. Nelson, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay, so Nelson, let's jump right in. I know that you've been an economics writer for the New York Times for the last 10 years, which is really impressive and I'm sure a ton of fun, right? What, let's discuss what's on everyone's mind right now, right? The effects of COVID on our economy, both long and short term. So what are you seeing around the country? I think, you know, one thing that really strikes me is that the effects of COVID on workers and ordinary Americans and, you know, employees of companies is not even, you know, I think it's, it's hitting working class Americans harder, hitting poor Americans harder, hitting people in service jobs harder. So if you are an upper middle class white collar worker, you know, uh, you know, who works in front of a computer most of the day, the adaptation to working from home, it might not have been easy, you know, people with kids or, People, you know, people with, you know, complicated living situations may, you know, may not enjoy being stuck in their homes, you know, all day working rather than going to an office, but it's doable. Uh, whereas if you work in a restaurant or you work for a hotel or you work for an airline or you work on Broadway as an actor or, you know, you know, all those kinds of jobs really have been hammered. Uh, and I think you're seeing parts of the economy recover pretty, pretty well. Like the housing market's pretty good right now. Uh, people are- Is that are across buying... the country, Nelson, the housing market, when you say it's pretty good, is that across the country? Yes, I mean, generally in more affluent neighborhoods, to be honest. Um, but, you know, housing prices have recovered, you know, housing starts have recovered, you know, just to, you talk to real estate agents, especially in the suburbs, a lot of people want to move out of the city um, it's been pretty strong, but again, it's in more affluent neighborhoods. And I think, you know, for people who, for working class people, it's been much harder. I think that's true. And would you say that's across the country in, you know, or is it urban areas? Is it rural areas? Is it both? Is it just everywhere? Well, I think the lockdowns have been more severe in the Northeast and, and places like Michigan and California, there've been more restrictions. I think also more restrictions in urban areas, 
But, you know, travel, for instance, uh, you know, travel is down. The number of people crossing through TSA checkpoints is still down 60 percent from March. Um, So if you're an airline, I mean, you you know, airlines are laying off thousands of people. Um, You don't need as many stewardesses, you know, flight. You don't need as many flight attendants. You know, you don't need as many ground staff. If you're Disney, you know, Disneyland in California is still closed. I mean, there are thousands of people are employed in leisure and hospitality, and it's really taken a hit. So that's been hard. Whereas you talk to people, you you would encounter them, uh, people at law firms and stuff, I think have bounced back as near as I could tell, or at least are holding their own. Yes. And I think um, what, what I've been finding with exactly what you're saying with more of the white collar of able to work at home. Uh, people is that actually some of them are quite enjoying it, right? Especially, mm. you know, you and I have have school age children, so that makes it more difficult when they weren't in 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 person school. But if you don't have children at home, a lot of people are saying, "Hey, I kind of like this." So not only are they making it work, but in some respects, they're thriving. Right. I mean, uh, there are a lot of people who find themselves more productive working from home. And especially the ones who have to normally have long commutes. I mean, that's something I've heard from people is they're really glad. I live in the city, so I don't have a commute. But I talk to people who in other in other parts of the country and you know, Florida and other places, and they have like an hour long commute. And you know, normally and to not have that is a lot, you know, all of a sudden they have a lot more time. Okay, but you know, I in you know my role as as an attorney represent you know unions and public pension funds. So a lot of a lot of those people, right, need to electrical workers, iron sheet workers. They they need to be, like you say, at the job, hands on, right? Is the divide now because of COVID between you know the rich and and the and the less rich getting even larger? Yeah, I I think it's worse, and I I think you know. Without more aid from Washington or another stimulus package, it's going to get worse. Um, you know, and I think for your kinds of employees, talk about union uh, union employees. I think people who are building, you know, I think home construction is strong, but construction of commercial buildings. You know, you're talking about like iron workers and and contractors and all that. I think is is, is pretty depressed from everything I've heard. Because, you know, a lot of downtowns, you know, you're not putting up new office buildings when no one's at work. That's absolutely true. And, you know, you also talked a little bit about real estate um, and how Mm -hmm. it it seems in the more affluent areas to be holding its own. But, you know, you and I actually are both in New York City um, and we're not seeing that here at all. Right. So let's talk a little about, you know, the urban places where people Mm -hmm. were traditionally living, right? In tight spaces and apartments, Chicago, New York. How are those places faring? And and what do you see for a recovery for that? Well, I think there's, you know, been a huge desire in sort of traditional urban areas, New York, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, which were very strong for people to move to the suburbs. And you you really saw that. uh, I'm most familiar with the New York area. But in Westchester, home prices were up. You know, that's a northern suburb. Uh, home prices were up. Uh, demand was up in terms of activity with, with if you talk to brokers. Uh, I think that's going to last for as long as the coronavirus is out there. Uh, I think once we get a vaccine and maybe you get herd immunity and, you know, it's less of a threat and people return to normal patterns like 
going into offices, like being able to go to restaurants and eat inside without being nervous the whole time. I think then you might get a little bit of a recovery in real estate prices in the city. But right now, uh, definitely the suburbs are much hotter. And, you know, I think real estate prices in New York and rents in New York are down, which is really a reversal from previous years. Right. And, you know, I think the key uh, phrase that you used was a little bit of a recovery because I'm not sure that it's going to recover uh, the urban areas in full speed for maybe even a decade, dare I say. Like, mm. I, I don't know if I'm being negative and I'm wondering your thoughts on this just a, a, as a writer, but um, I really don't see how, like, I think a lot of people that thought living in the city, like you say, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, LA, it's great. It's awesome with the convenience, the thrill of it. The city has a certain sparkle that maybe the suburb lacks. I think a lot of those people, especially with children, are suddenly saying, you know what, I could get used to a house and a yard, and maybe I don't need all of this. And I, and I don't know that that's going to reverse even when the coronavirus is more under control. What are your thoughts? I mean, I tend to be a little more optimistic. I mean, I lived through, through 9-11 living in Manhattan, and everyone predicted, you know, this was the end of downtown. Right. And downtown, and downtown came back stronger than ever. And even after the crash in 08, you know, when Wall Street took a huge hit, people predicted, you know, it would be devastating for Manhattan. And actually, I feel like New York City came through that crisis pretty well. You know, the, the sort of the mortgage crisis and, and the, the recession of 08, 09. So, I mean, I don't think anything really bounces back until after there's a vaccine. And, and the number of cases, I'm looking at the New York Times site, and it shows that there were 60,000 new cases diagnosed uh, yesterday, just in a day, and that's up 36% over the last two weeks. So you're still seeing a lot, not in New York, just to be clear, or not in the Northeast, but you know, you're still seeing a lot of cases diagnosed. So everyone's nervous about that. I mean, I'm, I'm always nervous that uh, there's going to be a case diagnosed at my kid's school and then the school the school will shut down and we'll have to go back to zoom uh, zoom teaching so everyone's nervous um but i think um you know i think that once we get past the virus being so transmissible that will you know that people will sort of come back to New York City. I, I'm not writing New York City off. No, I, I certainly hope you are right, and I am um, not. <laughs> so um, let's talk for a second about your book, which I think is really a fascinating read, The Velvet Rope Economy. First of all, did you coin that term? I love that term. In all honesty, it was coined by my editor, Tom Redburn, who was my editor at the Times and later helped me edit the, the book itself. Uh, so I give credit to Tom. But uh, it, it, it really does capture what life is like out there. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what that term means and um, the premise of, you know, the rich and the poor having less and less in common. Sure. Um, basically, you know, what struck me as a reporter is that there are fewer and fewer places where we all come together as Americans and consumers and that consumer experiences are more and more divided and uh, separated and tiered uh, into different castes. So there's nine different groups to board an American Airlines flight. 
you go to Yankee Stadium and there's a separate section called Legends where only elite ticket holders can sit. And you can't even you, you can't even walk down to the field for an autograph or to talk to the players anymore before the game if you're seated if you're seated farther back because you've got the Legends section there and that's roped off literally. Um, and you have this on board ships now, you know, on um, uh, Norwegian, there's a ship within a ship. And then there on Royal Caribbean, there's restaurants that are only for elite, uh, you know, sweet guests. And so in so many areas where people mixed in the past, you've got these velvet ropes up. Uh, and then there's sort of kind of metaphorical velvet ropes and like people will go to a concierge doctor and be able to jump the line and get a COVID test before everyone else. Uh, or, you know, while everybody else waits in traffic to get to JFK, you know, the, you know, Kennedy airport in New York, a few people will take a helicopter with blade. Um, it's a service where you, you know, sort of literally jump, you jump the line literally and jump traffic and fly above it. And so many areas we're seeing this kind of tiering that uh, it struck me that we're developing kind of a caste system in America and sort of America was founded on an egalitarian promise. All men are created equal. I mean, we didn't live, we didn't live up to the promise. You know, we had slavery and women weren't included uh, in that, but it was something to aspire to. At least there was egalitarian aspiration and we were kind of losing that. And we were becoming more of a caste society, which I think is something new and different in American life. And I wanted to explore that. And what do you posit as the remedy for this? I mean, I think if you had um, policies that, you know, created more access to education, if we had faster economic growth, if we sort of, you know, if we taxed, uh, you know, the, the, the very wealthiest earners a little more and sort of taxed uh, non earned income more like, uh, you know, taxing, uh, you know, investment income at a higher rate. Uh, I think you might restore a little of the balance to working people. But I think at, at the same time, some of this is our, our larger forces like technology. I think technology concentrates wealth, makes things more efficient, makes it much more easy for companies to identify their highest spending customers. So I don't know if that's something necessary necessarily that government policy can change. So, I mean, I think it's something that we need to be aware of, but it's not easy to change. I think these are long-term shifts in, in modern life. And in, and in modern thinking, right? Like we maybe have to change, yeah. right? The way we're really like looking at things because we certainly don't want to be a caste system. That's as you said, it's not the way we, right. America was founded. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we can choose as consumers to you know, have more egalitarian experiences and reward companies that you know, treat customers more equally. For example, Southwest doesn't have classes. There's no business or first class on Southwest. It's only one class. They've been tremendously successful. Uh, you know, the Green Bay Packers are fan owned and Green Bay Stadium, it has seats, it has box seats and all that, but it's not quite as divided and tiered as, you know, Levi Stadium in San Francisco or Yankee Stadium. It's a little more, you know, ordinary fans get a good view of the action on the field. And I think the, the team has tried to kind of keep it, you know, uh, keep it real for ordinary fans and not make it just uh, a sport just for, you know, elite 
business box holders. And people are very receptive to that, is what you're saying, right? Yes, yes, they are. I mean, the Green, Green Bay has been tremendously successful as a franchise, and as has Southwest Airlines. It's the most profitable U.S. airline out there. Unlike many of its competitors, it never went bankrupt. Um, so you can succeed uh, by being more egalitarian and not going down the velvet rope route. But, uh, but, you know, as the rich get richer and as, you know, more income, more disposable income ends up in the hands of the wealthiest Americans, it's only natural that businesses are going to go after them. So I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing that. And this COVID thing is only going to exacerbate that. Um, and if you want to grow right now, going after working class customers is not the way to go because they're struggling, whereas the wealthiest Americans are doing okay. The stock market's recovered. Uh, the housing market, at least in wealthy areas, have recovered. So I think you know, COVID really uh, worsens inequality, which I think makes my book more relevant than ever. Yes, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking just that, you know, you wrote your book um, because I remember uh, a book signing you had at Barnes & Noble, so it was right before COVID. So you yeah. wrote your book yeah. right before COVID, but it's actually much, uh, like exponentially more relevant even than when you wrote it. Yeah, yeah, no, abs absolutely. And you're seeing it in medicine. I mean, people who have concierge doctors have, have an easier time getting tests. And, you know, when the, when the vaccine comes out, it's going to be really interesting to see who has access first. Yeah, you know, I think that's such an important point, you know, because in my representation of, you know, unions and pension funds, a lot of, you know, unions have welfare funds, which used to provide top medical benefits. But it seems that these funds can no longer keep up, right? And their benefits are just not what they used to be. And how does that impact the middle class? Well, you know, healthcare is one of those things that's becoming more and more tiered. Uh, I made some doctor's appointments recently and, you know, for just regular stuff. And the first question, you know, like an eye doctor, uh, a dermatologist, just normal kind of stuff. Um, and the first question they asked was, uh, what's your insurance? And that really determines whether you get in the door or not, uh, and whether you can see the doctor. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's going to be with, with COVID, that's going to be a real sticking point because people are going to be desperate for that vaccine. It's going to be a matter of life and death. You actually see it in, in, in care of, you know, President Trump and Chris Christie, former governor, were able to get that uh, cocktail of, of antibodies. That, Antibody you know, cocktail, may, right. That may have saved their lives. And there's only a limited number. So who's going to get that? It's not going to be the people with limited uh, health insurance or, or without health insurance, for sure. Right. You know, I thought that was such an important point because I think that, you know, after President Trump went out and said, hey, everything's great, I'm feeling fantastic, you know, a lot of um, people didn't realize, well, he's feeling fantastic, but he and you are not going to get the same health care. And that's an important thing to remember when, you know, in these crazy times is that we can't just be so cavalier because we don't all have access to what he had access to. Yeah. And, it, and it's night and day for those who don't. So true. So, Nelson, I want to move a little bit on from this. You've written so many interesting um, articles and reported from so many interesting places. What sticks out in your mind as like one of your favorite stories, if you have one? 
you know, I did a series of stories about the workers at Carrier. And uh, basically, Carrier is, you know, manufacturers, heating and cooling systems, air conditioners, and, and uh, that kind of thing. And they have a plant in Indianapolis, and the company was going to close it. Trump made a cause celeb out of it, and he actually was able to save about half the jobs. I mean, the company let go about half, and they had a, a package with tax incentives. And um, I sort of wrote about that and wrote about the workers, you know, as they kind of went through this process. They kind of were a political football um, with both sides trying to use it and just learning about their lives and seeing how they, you know, they enjoyed working in the factory and how much more manufacturing paid than ordinary. Many of these workers don't have a college degree and only a third of Americans have a college degree. So if you only have a high school degree, your options are limited and, um, they, you know, you, you're looking at being able to earn 12 or $13 working in an Amazon warehouse or earning over $20 an hour working in manufacturing. The problem is there aren't that many manufacturing jobs left. A lot of them have gone to Mexico or to China. And so writing about these workers struggles, that really is really interesting to me. And then, um, the other stories that have really stuck with me, uh, back when I was, I was at fortune magazine for 10 years before I was at the Times, and I did a lot of stuff overseas, and I actually went to uh, Iraq and uh, Libya and wrote about the energy industry in those countries and uh, and the re rebuilding of Iraq, which, which our tax dollars hard at work. Uh, I'm not sure how successful it was, but writing about those uh, countries was very interesting to visit, meet locals, and travel around. Both both Iraq and Libya, I went to in 2003 and 2004, and they were a lot safer for journalists when I went um, than than now. Um, so, uh, but so I'm glad I went then. Uh, I, I wasn't married with kids then, so I could do adventurous kind of travel like that. Right. <laughs> right. Um, um, but uh, those were great experiences as a reporter. Well, what was it like actually? That's so interesting to live there day to day. In, in, in an essentially a, a third world country. Like, did you feel like you were missing things? Like, what was that actually like for you? Just like getting food, getting around, all of that. Both those countries, I mean, you know, when I went to Libya, uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi had sort of, uh, you know, an iron fist in terms of the country. So uh, it was it was safe for foreigners and journalists, I mean, you know, the government was obviously oppressive and, you know, dictatorship, but you didn't have like insurgencies or, you know, ISIS or anything like that. And so you could travel around and interview people. People were nervous to be interviewed, um, but you had relative freedom of movement as a reporter. Uh, Iraq, you had to be more careful, but again, it was before the rise of ISIS. So I was able to really travel around the country and go to different cities like Karbala and Najaf, uh, the Shiite holy cities, go around Baghdad, went to Basra. Uh, it, it was very interesting to meet locals. And, you know, I mean, look, all people in all these countries want stability. I mean, they want like basic middle class things. And what's amazing is you realize how lucky we are as Americans 
to have, you know, services we can count on, political stability. I mean, lately, you know, things don't feel as politically stable as maybe they always did. So it's a little unnerving for us as Americans. But those people in these countries want the same things in terms of the stability and predictability of life, but it was absent there. Right. I, you know, it's, I always say that when you meet people, I, I also travel um, or traveled prior to Corona quite a bit for my job. And when you meet people around the country and around the globe, I think you realize that, you know, what we have in common as just people is really greater than anything that divides us. And that when you get to know people with their with their stories, right, like people want health and security and good lives for themselves and meaningful lives for their children. And that's just universal everywhere you go. I think these societies were, you know, were much more traditional uh, than American society. And, you know, people were comfortable with that. But I think, you know, it, it, it sort of sent a warning to us as Americans, you know, sort of to protect the stability and the legitimacy of our government, that kind of thing. Because when you lose that, the society really becomes unstable. And, you know, these countries, Iraq and Libya, have really had a really struggled since I was there. Uh, Libya, in, Libya in particular, you've got like a civil war there. You've got different factions battling for control, um, and you know you realize how lucky. You know, it makes me a little nervous for the election. Hopefully, you know the election will be resolved quickly. We won't have months of uncertainty because you know, we want to protect our institutions. Because, yeah, that is frightening. And also, you know, as just someone who uh, lives in the pension fund world with, with clients, like, it always strikes me that, you know, we're really lucky. Yeah, your pension fund portfolio is going up, it's going down, you're losing money, you're not making as much as you want, your recoveries aren't where they're at. But for the most part, you still have a pension fund, and that's not true um, in most of the world. They're not that lucky, you know? Well, look, in America, so many workers have lost pensions over the last few decades. Um, so you're really lucky to have a pension. And I think a pension is one of those things, you know, in terms of thinking about my book and, and widening inequality and, and more and more wealth accruing to the, you know, top one or 5%, pensions actually are a countervailing force to that. And, you know, I think when companies contribute to pensions, they're sort of taking some of the profits and, sharing it with the people who, who created those profits, their workers. So, I mean, I think, you know, pensions are definitely a positive force in terms of inequality. Right. And also maybe, you know, those on like a public employees who participate in pension funds, um, when their children are out of the home, they can live very comfortably on that pension fund money and they can avail themselves of some of the services that maybe the more affluent um, we're used to doing all along. So that's also maybe lessens the divide. Yes, yes, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I haven't seen the data lately on, you know, what percentage of workers in America have pensions, but it'll be interesting to see that and see where that goes in the next five or 10 years. Right, I agree, that will be interesting. So I don't wanna let you go just without asking you, just what does you see for the future of import-export in the, the U.S. economy? You know, I mean, America is a service economy. So two thirds uh, of, you know, uh, something like two thirds of growth and the economy come from services. So I think, you know, manufacturing is very important and uh, it's something I write about a lot, 
but you know services will continue to be the most important i think you know uh, it seems like the tr the trade deficit has stabilized where it is it's large and there's certain area there's certain areas where imports continue to dominate even with tariffs even with a more hostile stance towards china i mean we're still dependent on china like like for masks you know the all the all the masks from covid not the designer ones that you can order but maybe those too but the bulk of the ones that people are wearing all come from China. So you see that we're still dependent on imports for a lot of goods. Um, but uh, so I don't see I don't see that changing much. Uh, but I think the, right now what we want to see is for areas of the economy where workers have really suffered, like those the, the service workers and like the leisure and hospitality workers, for that to come back. Uh, and I think if you watch, it'd be interesting to watch the employment numbers for the next few months to see if there's any rebound in employment. Yeah, I guess that I, I think with regard to hospitality, I mean, that's all about travel, right? So right, right, right. We, we really have to see when and if the opportunity to travel opens up again. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think it's going to have to, unfortunately for those people, it's going to have to wait until there's a vaccine. I think that that you could be right. Well, um, Please, Nelson, tell everyone where to find your website, your book, because I know a lot of people are going to be interested in reading it. It's a fascinating read. Sure. Uh, you can order it on Amazon. If you just type in Velvet Rope Economy, uh, it'll take you to the Amazon site. You can also look at nelsonschwartz.com. There's stuff about the book and about uh, the stories I write and what some of the stories we've discussed here. Uh, and you can also Google Nelson Schwartz and New York Times and that'll list all the stories I've written recently. So if, you, if you're interested in some of the stuff I've written about unemployment, uh, about the economy, about growth, it's all there. Amazing. And how often do you put out um, a Times story? I try to be in the paper like once a week or once every other week, something like that. Wonderful. All right. Well, it's a pleasure speaking with you. You're a wealth of good information. So I appreciate you coming on. And um, thanks for all the insight. Thanks, Atara. I've enjoyed the conversation.